0: Hello and welcome to this IFG live event on how the UK can be a global leader in climate adaptation. Thank you very much for joining us on this lunchtime on what is a somewhat grey and grisly day here in London. I'm conscious that talking about the weather is an awfully British thing but equally the weather and its impact seems central to what we're here to talk about today. So I hope that what follows will be both a thoughtful and timely discussion of an incredibly important topic and give you all some food for thought. I'm really delighted uh, to be joined by a truly exceptional panel today. Uh, we have Professor Julia King, Baroness Brown of Cambridge, who chairs the Climate Change Committee's Adaptation Committee and recently led the CCC's independent assessment of climate risk for the UK government's third climate risk assessment. We are also joined by Her Excellency Saida Muna Tazneem, the High Commissioner for Bangladesh, uh, who has recently helped to forge the UK-Bangladesh Climate Action Partnership. I'm also pleased to welcome Dr. Jane Strachan, who is Head of International Applied Science at the Met Office. And finally, Richard Blewett, the Executive Director of International at the British Red Cross. And I would like to take this moment to thank the Red Cross and the Met Office for partnering with us to make this uh, this event a reality. Just a few housekeeping notes before we get going. Um, I encourage you all to use the Q&A function from the get-go to share your questions. Uh, I'm going to put some opening questions to our panel for about 20 minutes or so. Uh, but we really want to get uh, your questions and hear what you want to know about so uh, if you could get those in and uh, when you ask a question it helps us if you can add your name and where you're from Uh, if you don't have a question but like what others are saying uh, please up like them so we can see the best and most pertinent questions in the mix and i would also encourage you to join the discussion on twitter using the event hashtag ifgclimate now According to the US's national oceanographic, oceanic and atmospheric administration, 19 of the 20 hottest years since 1880 have occurred since the turn of the millennium. The other year, 1998. The last time global temperatures fell was in 1976. And similarly, five of the 10 wettest years globally have occurred this century. Here in the UK, the Met Office ranked 2020 as the third hottest year since 1884, the sixth wettest since 1862, and the eighth sunniest since 1919. And we know that these trends are the consequence of climate change, driven by our emissions of CO2, methane and other gases. If there was ever a shred of doubt that climate change is here and affecting us all, the first six months of 2020 should really have put that away. We've seen devastating floods in China, India and Germany, winter storms that took down the power grid in Texas and a heat wave that is causing an extreme drought in the Western US. And across the world, rich nations and poor nations alike are facing the reality that we live in a a one degree world now and we are heading for one and a half likely too. Heat waves, floods, winter storms, and the consequences that follow are challenges that we need to confront now. Yet, to quote our panelist Baroness Brown, adaptation remains the Cinderella of climate change, still sitting in rags by the stove, under-resourced, underfunded, and often ignored. So today, we're going to consider what can be done and what the UK's role is in this, both as a leader and as a partner. Richard, if I could come to you first, Climate adaptation has often been seen as the poor relation to mitigation, yet we need to become more resilient come what may. It's not really an option. I just want to ask, what's your experience of raising the issue of climate adaptation within the UK government and with others been like? And does the British Red Cross find that the approaches or attitudes to the challenge of adaptation vary when the focus is domestic versus abroad?
1: Thank you very much, Marcus. So I I would like to start by, you know, thanking everybody for being here today. Um, You know, the Red Cross, Red Crescent uh, and the International uh, ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, we've been worrying about climate for a very long time. We've had a climate reference center working for 17 years. And you might think, well, why would a humanitarian actor care about climate? Well, the reality is that we've been seeing the impacts of the climate crisis over that period of time, accelerating. Uh, And so the climate crisis is a real and present challenge. If we look at COVID conflict and climate crisis, this is having devastating effects. These combinations of challenges to millions and millions of people around the world. So it's a really uh, serious matter for us. You know, it's very good that in July, the there was the ministerial first ministerial meeting uh, in preparation for COP26 and listening to Patricia Espinosa, she highlighted you know, the recent extreme weather events, raising both the attention not only of decision makers, but also of the general public. The general public are sort of starting to get a greater level of understanding. And that's critical to create the momentum for political will to scale our ambition. But at the same time, Alec Sharma, the COP president, kind of highlights in that meeting only this month that we have a long way to go. We're not yet close enough to really have confidence that COP26 is going to deliver. Um, So if I come to your question about mitigation and adaptation, I mean, obviously it's good that Britain has an ambitious uh, target on, on mitigation. It's obviously good that the COP presidency is pushing for a net zero initiative. Uh, initiatives on on uh, mitigation, the Red Cross Red Crescent in its strategy 2030 has placed both mitigation and adaptation at the heart of our future humanitarian work uh, for decades to come. For good reason. We will speak up about mitigation because if we don't mitigate, we're going to have a massive humanitarian landscape all over the world. We already have one uh, linked to the climate crisis and it's just going to get worse and worse quickly. And so it's very important that mitigation uh, initiatives are, are prioritized and happen at the same time on adaptation you know there is a very small amount of money flowing to adaptation around the world and countries that have not created the climate crisis are not being financed sufficiently or supported to be able to deal with the consequences of it. So adaptation and being able to help your communities and uh, and society be able to withstand these extreme weather events is absolutely critical. Looking forward, the UN estimates that adaptation finance must grow by a factor of 3 to 16 times by 2030. I mean so we need a massive increase in public financing for adaptation to protect communities we also know in very very poor countries and conflict affected countries most of the existing climate money doesn't go there so whatever climate money is available very vulnerable communities in very at-risk places that are very affected by climate change 20 of, of the most vulnerable climate affected countries in the world have conflict related matters that they're dealing with, they get almost no financing. So then there's this talk of the 100 billion every year. Well, it hasn't materialized. And you know, for much of the developing world and the emerging economies, they are demanding for COP26 that this 100 billion materializes and is delivered. But most importantly, it has to be delivered and enable national ownership and enable communities to be engaged with it so that it actually reaches those most in need we really welcome the fact that the UK government has placed adaptation as one of the five pillars uh, of its agenda for COP26. It is great uh, that there is a race to resilience, to build momentum around resilience. It's really good that the UK government, with other governments, have formed the Adaptation Action Coalition, and over 35 countries I think now are part of that. It's also good that the UK government has sponsored an initiative to look at access to financing they started that in may this year just uh, last uh, 2 months ago so just really encouraging that we build this momentum to the 100 billion target at the same time of course the uk has just cut its aid budget you know that is not a clear and unambiguous message about a commitment to increasing financing for adaptation even if they do target their own resources in the future towards adaptation So we would prioritise a couple of things on this agenda. One would be the importance of scaling anticipatory action. And we've worked a lot with met offices around the world uh, with linking meteorology to communities. Because if you can respond before a disaster, you can actually save lives and save livelihoods and reduce cost and reduce human suffering. And we really welcome the fact that the UK government supports the risk-informed early action partnership which plans to make 1 billion people safer from disasters by 2025. So the question then about uh, the last piece of your question of you know attitudes and challenges around adaptation home and abroad. I think at home, I mean, I, Baroness um, Brown is gonna be much more eloquent to talk to me uh, talk about that agenda than I am. But I think we are very worried about whether there is a consciousness in the public about the threats of heat, the effects of flooding, and general sense of this is an important issue here in the UK that has humanitarian and human consequences. Um, and at the same time, you know we know from recent polling that only 42 percent of the UK public think flooding has serious impacts in the UK. And more concerning, one in four don't think that the UK is hot enough to experience a heat wave, despite the fact that we had 2,500 excess deaths occurring in England during 2020's heat waves. Now, as you, we have just launched a report uh, just this week on feeling the heat uh, with the Met Office, really giving practical tools and ideas to help policymakers deal with heat waves. I mean, last week was a very hot week. And in the context of, you know, people not being completely able to move around, the risks of dehydration and potential loss of life from a heat wave are very serious. And so we think that there's a long way to go to build more momentum around this agenda in the UK and particularly the upcoming resilience, uh, national resilience strategy is going to be a big opportunity to move forward this agenda. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Richard. That's uh, some really uh, provocative thoughts there. Um, if I could come uh, on to uh, Baroness Brown next, um, you recently committed, uh, so completed the UK's third uh, risk assessment, which laid out the urgent need for the UK more resilient. Could you just uh, sort of tell us a bit more about what the priority areas for action are here. And I think following on from it also, what do you think the UK can both learn from other nations um, about this and how can it offer models uh, for others to follow in response uh, to the adaptation challenge?
2: Well, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me to talk. And it's great to, to follow Richard from the Red Cross, because uh, he wrote their report, um, feeling the heat is uh, very important and, and, and very timely. Um, we published at the end of June the, uh, the the materials to support the UK's next climate change risk assessment, CCRa3, which the government will present to Parliament um, either towards the end of this year or or early next year. Um, and we we produced, as the Adaptation Committee of the Climate Change Committee, the uh, the technical report, the report of of the relevant research that has been going on. And also our independent advice, uh, and uh, the uh, the technical report flags up over 60 areas of of risk that need to be thought about, uh, and in our advice um, we, pri- we we did some fairly radical prioritisation really, because we felt there were a number of topics that were particularly urgent um, topics that um, are are really key to major policy initiatives like net zero um, and things that we think the government can deal with in the current parliament, so we can take urgent action. Uh, but we also flagged up that we really do need to start looking at um, the um, the extremes of the distribution, that, uh, you know, we we like to think, we like to think, oh, well, the average thing that's likely to happen is this. So we can base all our planning on this simple number, the the middle of the distribution. We've we've got to look at the extremes of the distribution and we've also got to be prepared for the unexpected. And of course, um, you know, actually then what did we see? But we saw the unexpected in Europe. And I think it showed even how well-prepared countries like Holland um, were really very badly hit by the the unexpected uh, extreme of flooding that they experienced. We also emphasized that, Climate change is already happening, and it's been great to see the Met Office report um, stressing that as well. Uh, and that there is already a lot of change locked in by 2050, which, even when, as we hope, we're on a, a 1.5 to 2 degree um, maximum temperature rise path, we still need to recognize that we will see significantly more change happening until 2050, and in some cases, uh, beyond. But let me get to those those eight priority risks, uh, risk areas. And the first one is absolutely what Richard was just talking about last. It was the risk to people's health in the UK from heat. Uh, and that really is something we are hugely unprepared for. We've been um, telling the government, we must do something about this for 10 years. In that period, we've built almost half a million new homes, which overheat in weather like we've had recently. And as the Met Office is saying, we've got to prepare for, you know, seeing temperatures certainly in the southeast of 40 degrees centigrade in the summer. And of course, in places like Bangladesh, they know about the even greater experience of extreme heat. And we need to be thinking about the impacts of extreme heat overseas. I mean, when it gets too hot for people to pick our coffee beans, um, what are we all gonna be sitting around drinking at break time? You know, there are real impacts to us and to our comfortable way of life of climate change overseas so we are all in this together not just for mitigation but for adaptation as well there are the the next area was uh, was risks to the delivery of net zero to deliver net zero in the uk we're going to be relying on a lot of negative emissions and sequestration of carbon by the natural environment uh, and so unless our soils and our peatlands and our wetlands and our trees are healthy, we are not going to be able to sequester carbon in peat, sequester carbon by planting more trees, um, increase the yields of crops to make room for the trees. So we have really got to pay attention to the state of nature and the condition, and the condition of nature, not in the envi- not in the climate we have today, but in the climate we will have in 2050 when it will be hotter. In some parts of the country it will be drier. We will see more flash floods taking the surface of our and um, the nutrients out of the tops of our soils. So we've, we've got to be able to cope with that in order to deliver net zero. We've also got to recognise that the net zero world will be a different one for us in 2050 in the UK. At the moment uh, we get about 15% of our energy in total comes from electricity. By 2050, over 60% of our total energy use will be electricity. And today we already see cascading failures. So if, a, if a, um, uh, an electricity substation gets flooded somewhere, we see that the transport system may come to a halt locally. We see that our IT fails, we can't communicate, our phones don't work. Um, we see huge cascading failures in a small area. And that's with only 15% of our energy coming from electricity. When we are almost entirely dependent on electricity, a small failure due to a climate change in our electricity system will have huge impacts. And so we really need to ups, to to step up in terms of our, our understanding of the risk to key systems like our electricity system. And then there are a number of other key risks we flagged up, risks to our way of life and our economy. So in the more general risk to nature, um, nature is so hugely important to us, and yet we don't value it properly. Uh, And we are losing it very fast and climate uh, is going to accelerate that unless we take steps to make sure nature is in a good condition, unless we invest in it. Um, The risks to our supply chains. We've seen impacts on our supply chains, due to COVID, but actually they're going to be huge impacts on our supply chains due to climate change. And actually, particularly to our food supply chains, only about half of our food in the UK um, is grown in the UK. So we are hugely reliant on other countries. So if they have heat waves and droughts in Spain, then we'll be very short of salads. Um, we, you know, we are so reliant, as I say, We are so reliant on other countries um, and actually adaptation in other countries is something we really do need to support. Uh, We are also, uh, we also need to take more notice about overseas risks. Um, Overseas risks that includes those supply chain ones. Um, There was flooding in Thailand a few years ago, which led to a worldwide shortage of disk drives because three key factories in Thailand were flooded. Um, We are so interdependent. We really do have to support each other in this area. But of course, also, we know that climate change um, causes war, causes migration, um, all those sorts of challenges overseas, um, which just because we're an island, uh, we can't pretend don't affect us as well. And affect, of course, generally global stability. So we are, there are huge risks to us in the UK, which need investment and which we need to recognize. But we also need to recognize that helping the rest of the world adapt is actually helping ourselves that we are so interdependent these days. And what can we learn from others? Well, I think countries like, like Bangladesh, um, they of course have experienced much worse uh, examples of of impacts of climate change. They have much more experience of things like early warning systems, Uh, making sure that the population know how to respond when a serious event happens We're we're starting to do that with things like the Met Office warnings and the Met Office flood and the Environment Agency flood warming warnings. We now have the new Met Office um, heat warnings, Um, but I don't think we're yet properly attuned to that because, as Richard was commenting, uh, people don't yet understand uh, how actually how sensitive to climate change impacts we already are in the UK. So we we have an enormous amount, I think, to learn about planning for really major events from our partners overseas. So it really, really is important that, uh, that we all talk together about this, that we support each other and we recognise how dependent we are on successful adaptation overseas as well as in the UK. Thank you
0: thank you baroness brown that was really interesting and i'm really pleased actually you've preempted me um, just just bringing up the nature of how interconnected this this problem is and and how we're all in this together i'd like to come to um Extensity Tasneen tazneen uh neck now um and thank you again for giving us your time today Bangladesh, as as Baroness Brown mentioned, is a nation that has been confronting the hard realities of climate change for some time now, and uh, you've been a vocal proponent of climate adaptation work. What I'd be really interested to hear from you about is is actually, sort of, to Baroness Brown's point about how this has been neglected, why do you think climate adaptation has had so little political impetus? And also, when you're engaged in diplomacy, what has your experience been of moving climate adaptation up the agenda? What's helped to shift the focus? Of other governments towards the issue, and what do you see as the remaining obstacles here?
3: Thank you very much. I'd like to thank the uh, Institute for Government for inviting me, and I'd like to say hello to all the very distinguished co panelists, especially Baroness Brown. And it's so wonderful to have someone from the Met Office because uh, for Bangladesh, Met Office is our best friend because they tell us uh, for early warning it's exactly when the cyclone is coming, and we have developed one of the finest early warning. Uh, preparedness, natural disaster preparedness, by which we can move. We have the capacity to move millions of people in less than five days. That's what we did. Last 2020, there was cyclone Ampan in Bangladesh, if you recall. And, uh, you know, uh, we uh, we moved, uh, uh, with the Met Office early warning, 2.3 million people from our coastlines to cyclone shelters in five days. So, um, uh, you know, great to see Met Office and everybody else that are co-panelists here, Dr. Jane Strachan as well. Um, I want to, you know, respond to the first question that why adaptation has not received um, equal importance as mitigation. The answer is very simple. Uh, you know, uh, currently you know that we are the president of the Climate Vulnerable Forum, which is uh, a, a forum of 48 most climatically vulnerable countries in the world, including the small island developing countries, uh, coastal countries, low lying countries under drought, such as Ethiopia, be Rwanda and then all the Pacific and Caribbean countries, and Bangladesh is leading them. Now, one characteristic about all these countries is that they have some extreme situations where their existential threats are there, so they will go underwater. For example, Bangladesh, by 20, um, 2080, our IPCC report says that Bangladesh's 40 million people in the coastal areas, 19 districts, might become climatically displaced. That means it may go underwater. So this is the largest number of people, so when, uh, according to, you know, our global climate risk report, one out of 45 persons are at climate risk in Bangladesh to be displaced. In Bangladesh, it's one out of seven persons because of global warming and the sea level rise. So um, the characteristic of CVF countries, we've seen that we contribute the least to global emissions. Our carbon footprint is negligible. You know, point, Bangladesh is 0. 0.4 and less. It's, it's not even point four. Uh, metric ton where you know i don't want to name countries but you know there are countries who are giving 16 metric ton their square meter is much much smaller than us population is negligible but our population is 170 million so therefore these countries are emitting the most at uh, the least but they're being victimized the most why because the g20 which is the greatest and largest emitters they are not they were not concerned about adaptation and that is why in the policy making at the political level so, if you look at the adaptation history in the climate discourse, you will see that in 2010, the first time there was a committee created at Cancun for discussing adaptation, and it was decided that in the Paris conference it will be discussed and it'll be an agenda of the conference, and therefore adaptation came as a formal agenda in the UNFCCC process only in 20 at the Paris at COP 21, and there it was decided, as uh, you know, uh, our distinguished friend from Met Office said that you know 50 100 billion. Uh, um, Uh, US dollars and there was no distinction between how it will be spent, whether it's for mitigation or adaptation. So now every country, especially CDF, is demanding that this 100 billion, of course, you know that 100 billion, we didn't see any progress in the 100 billion being realized or given to any country for adaptation purposes. So now the demand of the day is that at COP26, we want to see 100 billion every year, 50% for mitigation, 50% for adaptation. And uh, I would just tell you that, you know, for global armaments, two trillion U.S. dollars are being spent. But then we didn't see hundred billion. Two trillion each year. Every year, you know, leaders are spending in armaments two trillion. But where is the hundred billion? So what we see is that, you know, uh, countries such as Bangladesh, I would just give you one example that, you know, as a diplomat, you also asked me the second question. Now, the things that uh, we keep on talking about adaptation and resilience building, but there's also a limit to adaptation. How much can you adapt? So on the other hand, you have to cap the temperature rise. You have to focus also on mitigation. You have to ask the G20 to stop and reduce their emissions. And you have to go for all kinds of climate financing by which adapting can become easier for countries that are facing existential threats. So I'll give you one example of Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, each year, we're losing 2% of our GDP to climate change. That means we have natural disasters such as cyclone every year. We have two times flooding every year. This didn't used to be this intense in ferocity and intensity, but this is becoming intense and frequent every year. And every year, we're losing that. But then every year, we also, you, you know, spending 5 billion US dollars in adaptation and resilience building. We're building dikes in our low lying coastal areas, following the Netherlands but you know, uh, a model. And then we are also, uh, you know, being innovative in, uh, you know, we have, we'll just give you one nature-based solution, which is uh, floating agriculture on uh, water hyacinth. So this is a very uh, ancient method of agriculture on low-lying marshy lands, and we are following that in an entire coastal area. We have the largest number of solar home systems. That is, each home will run by the you know, they'll have an independent solar home. We have 5.8 million solar home systems in the coastal areas. And the other one is we've developed, uh, you know, adapting to this situation, uh, salinity and, um, um, and drought resistant rice and crops. So if we want to address adaptation, we have to have the political will to first fund adaptation programs in developing countries, LDCs and most climatically vulnerable. For us, our Prime Minister, Shikhasina, she, she has a policy of self-reliance. That means you can't wait for people to come with money to help you to survive. We have to find some way of surviving ourselves. So she has created this 500 million US dollar fund, trust fund, that every year from our national revenues, and we are spending more than 5 billion US dollars each year in adaptation and mitigation. That means we are planting trees. We have the largest mangrove forest in the world. It's called the Sundarbans. You know, they're... Carbon sinks. So we're trying to do carbon capture as much as possible and keep our em- mitigation, uh, you know, emissions low. But at the same time, that hundred billion has to be realized at this COP. What we saw in this COP in the UK is that there is after Paris. This is probably the most politically uh, intense COP. But we see there's a you know alliance of stars between United States and United Kingdom. This is a great, great alliance, and we have to take opportunity. You know, we have to capture this opportunity to make sure that adaptation financing is disbursed. Now, if you look at somebody was speaking about DFID, see Bangladesh does not take any aid from UK, but we want to do. a, You know, you mentioned about the climate accord. So, on the 50th anniversary of Bangladesh UK diplomatic relations, we are targeting a climate accord between our two countries, where we want to, uh, you know, learn about. Transfer of technology and adaptation best practices. The problem is, you see, Bangladesh is a very small country with a very large population. We don't have landmass. We cannot spare agricultural land for solar, for solar, uh, for renewable energy by solar. We don't have enough wind draft and we can't have wind energy. So there has to be solutions, alternate solutions to carbon fossil fuel also. So you you know, people can, can't expect us to do renewable energy when we don't have any space for renewable energy. We have space only for crops. So we have to think of how these countries who have special needs, countries who, who are island countries going down, and what about climate justice, you know? That's another issue that is linked to adaptation. You can adapt, but eventually if you go underwater and you have displaced people, who's going to take those refugees? I will give one quote from my Prime Minister. You know, Bangladesh is uh, uh, last year, Uh, uh, there's a Global Center for Adaptation by Ban Ki-moon, you may have heard. This is the first center of Global Center of Adaptation and Bangladesh last year has just hosted the South Asia Center of Adaptation. Then in South Asia, we have Maldives and Sri Lanka under threat. We have Bangladesh, low-lying coastal area under threat. There are different kinds of problems that India has flooding and cyclone. So we are trying to learn from each other in this through the Global Center for Adaptation, South Asia Center. And when inaugurating Prime Minister Shikasina said, in a war against nature, we will only lose. All our actions manifest that we are consciously destroying the very support system that are keeping us alive. So the time to take action to save the planet is not tomorrow, but today. By this, she meant that if you want to take action, you have to take it yourself. You cannot wait for people to come and give you money. We cannot wait for global leaders to give us money. We don't know when whether G20 will uh, get-together at COP26 and actually deliver on 100 billion. But we're hoping that we do. And last point is that as CVF presidency, Bangladesh is among the seven priorities. One was to bring the linkage between climate change and human rights. And last month, as a member of the Human Rights Council, Bangladesh had tabled this resolution. It was adopted by consensus, and we have requested the resolution says we must appoint a special rapporteur for finding the loss and damage and different kinds of effects on communities and vulnerable communities on the impact of climate change, whether it's what sort of rights are being lost here, and who's going to pay the compensation under loss and damage under the Article 8 of the UNFCC. So I will thank you very much.
0: No, thank no, you. Thank that, you. Was, that was uh, really, really, really interesting. interesting, and and I think uh, just the the breadth of like the, the the challenge, you know, the idea that you know there is no one size fits all, you know, if, and you know the need for finance is is really important. I was also really interested to hear you you stressing the uh, both the need for for both mitigation and adaptation. I think it's perhaps quite easy to take a fatalistic approach and think, well, you know we're going to go to two degrees anyway maybe we should just put all our money into adaptation but so you know I, th- I think seeing a dual track approach and actually one of the questions we've had from the audience has been about where that balance lies but actually i, I need to come to jane as well and it was really interesting to hear you talking about your uh, how the met office helps you with your sort of your the cyclone warning system so jane um i'm sure you know plenty about that um I was just going to say, uh, I saw that the uh, Met Office published its State of the UK climate report, I think earlier this week, and it really just underpinned everything we've heard so far. Just, um, you know, sort of quickly, what what is the Met Office's role sort of here, understanding both the local and global impacts of climate change and sort of, you know, how do you help develop these early warning systems?
4: Just first of all, I just wanted to say thank you to the other panel members um, and uh, also to the Institute for Government for setting up this session. Um, I'm honoured to be part of this panel. Um, So to answer your first question, um, as the UK's National Meteorological Service, we provide weather and climate forecasts to help people make weather and climate sensitive decisions so that we can be safe, well and also prosper. We work with partners around the globe to carry out our world leading research to monitor changes in the climate. As you said, this week we've seen the launch of the UK State of the Climate Report for 2020. We also look into determining the causes of these changes and using our robust science and climate modelling capability to assess how the climate may change in the future. But it's important to know that our work doesn't stop there so we build on that robust underpinning science by working with climate sensitive sectors in society to develop climate services and effective approaches to adapt to and manage climate risk Um, and to do this work we have to have multidisciplinary partners. Because we need to put that climate information into the local context this is really central to our work translating the climate information into decision support information and tools so for example we've done some work um, newton funded work um, which is called the weather and climate science for services partnership program this is about developing a network of partnerships to harness that weather and climate expertise the scientific expertise in the UK and with partner countries, we can't do this alone to strengthen the weather and climate resilience of vulnerable communities around the world. So, for example, we've um, this partnership is operating in Brazil, China, India, South Africa and Southeast Asia at the moment. Um, This has led to co co development of climate services, for example, in China to develop tools for urban planners to protect cities from the risks of weather events such as heat waves and flooding. But also, for example, developing new scientific capability to improve how we... Um, uh, Do seasonal forecasts of typhoons affecting that region to support disaster risk reduction. So everything that we do is based on our world leading science, but is very much enhanced by the close working relationships that we have with partner organisations around the world. um, and then your question around, um, you know, how that how do we work together? You know, this is a global phenomena. How do we, um, you know, how do we combine the efforts of many nations? I mean, although we're the UK's National Meteorological Service, We don't just provide weather and climate information to the UK public government and businesses. We share this information internationally via the global networks that we're very much part of and through our strong national and international partnerships. And that's really central to the way that we work. Um, As as Baroness Brown um, mentioned, weather and climate monitoring assessment understanding it relies on strong international cooperation and collaboration and the met office has always played a really strong role in that and benefited from that international effort you know we for, for example we work very closely with the world meteorological organization um we're a wmo Global Producing Centre in terms of playing a key role in that global network of climate information capability. We exchange weather and climate information so that we can understand the state of the climate collectively and work together to apply that information then locally. And that includes working with other national hydrometeorological centres around the world to build that weather and climate science and services capability. Um, We've also, for example, contributed scientists to all six assessment reports of the IPCC, Um, but it's very much based on that international collaboration.
0: That's fantastic, really interesting, and uh, clearly it seems to be uh, having benefits, you know, um, as, as we've already heard. We're getting an absolute flood of questions in from the audience. And I, I really want to get into those quickly. Um, so I'm going to just sort of jump off. If I can encourage uh, my, my fellow panellists to sort of keep their answers short so we can get through as many questions as possible. That'd be great. Um, one sort of at the top, uh, just from Ollie Watts at the RSPB. I thought this was interesting. Uh, he just wanted to ask. Should we change our positioning and language on adaptation from resilience against to living with climate change? Um, he recognises, as, as we've discussed, that this is a very real thing that's happening in people's lives. Do we need to help people understand that this is, this is something that's happening now and something that's going to be here basically forever? And, and you know, it's not a fight against that. We will win. It's something we, where we have to fundamentally change. So, um, uh, Excellency Tasneen, could, could I get your thoughts on that? And then, and then I'll go to Baroness Brown.
3: Uh, so, you know, of course we have to live with climate change. That's exactly what countries such as Bangladesh is doing. So we, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the occasion of this uh, CVA presidency, our prime minister has de- declared the Mujib climate prosperity. So we are coining this concept of climate prosperity. It means beyond adaptation, beyond resilience, you will not allow our prosperity to go down because of climate change. That's the basic theme of the prosperity concept. It says that Invest in low carbon development pathway and uh, invest uh, for a long term battle with climate change. But at the end, you have to win and you have to survive. And for that, you will not allow your prosperity or growth rate to go down, but you'll have to find out innovative ways to adapt to climate change. So, adaptation is actually at the center of it. But adapt in a certain way that you also invest in low carbon development pathway. But then you can't just do it alone, everyone else has to join in. They have to reduce their emissions because it is interlinked no matter what you do as long as emissions go on you can't keep temperatures capped at 1.5 so i would like to really present the climate prosperity concept for that living with climate and yet surviving and thriving that's
0: really that's cool, really cool. Uh, sorry that's interesting, interesting i should say uh, baroness brown
2: thank you and and I, I i agree with the the basis of of ollie's suggestion but i, I just think we need to be very very careful we don't imply that we can live with any level of climate change. Um, And I I wouldn't like to suggest that, you know, um, because we can, we have to live with climate change, we can live with on a pathway to to four degrees by the end of the century. I mean, I think we, we, people need to recognise that, that um, it's going to be uncomfortable living with climate change and the more climate change we allow to happen, the more uncomfortable and the more damaging it gets. So uh, I think we somehow need to encapsulate that. But he's absolutely right. People need to be thinking themselves into, how am I going to live? And as as Her Excellency, the ambassador says, um, how am I still going to be able to farm and prosper in the new conditions? And they need to prepare themselves for that. But, but we still need to get this message across that it has to be as little climate change as, as is absolutely feasible. Is.
4: Yes.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely not uh, opening the door to complacency. Uh, Jane do you have any thoughts on that that you want to add?
4: Yeah I mean I think that um, what's important is to you know we're on parallel pathways here Whichever, you know, we, we we need to follow a mitigation pathway, and there's various options for that, which we're looking at. Whichever mitigation pathway that we follow, we are going to have to follow that parallel pathway of adaptation um, and building resilience into our communities. But I think what's really important is that we look, we need to look at To be able to encourage society to make those mitigation actions and adaptations is to to look at the core benefits this is not just for climate change this is for general common sense good sense development Um, and i think that's really important to kind of to get action to people is to realize that actually this is really essential to to, to get engaged in the community very much as richard um, mentioned in his um, introduction that we need to build understanding of the current climate sensitivities Um, But also the future and and use that as a basis for building what might happen in the future and the understanding of how that might affect people very much on the local level. So it's taking it right down to what is it going to feel like for you? What is it feeling like for you now and what then actions might you take? So for example, we're doing some um, really nice work as part of the UK Climate Resilience Programme, working with um, local city councils to take that climate information right down to what's happening at that local level. So it ma- it makes it meaningful, it makes it actionable and putting that information into the context that that can create action. But framing it in that, um, you know, what are the kind of general co benefits to making those adaptations um, and mitigation actions?
0: That's that's really good. Um, Richard, I, I I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I, I have another question that I think might be uh, one that you you would be great to jump on, if that's all right. Um, we, we have a question from our familiar uh, viewer, Anonymous. Um, saying it's very disheartening to see that there are no sessions on health at COP26. Um, he or she asks if we can't get people to care about health when there's a global pandemic, what do we need to do better to get the message across? And, and I think just going back to what you were saying earlier about how, sort of, and what others have said about how the health impacts of adaptation are so significant. Do you have any thoughts on like why this is being deprioritized and what we can do to sort of bolster the message?
1: Well, just to say, um, actually, only last week we were discussing with our our colleagues in Geneva about how we partner WHO to bring the health dimensions of the climate crisis to COP26. So there is going to be a set of events and some level of voice and agency on the health and climate crisis because, you you know, you look at the heat problem and the loss of life and the risks, uh, you know, imagine it's bad here in the UK. If you live in a very poor environment um, where you don't have any access to to air conditioning, I mean, the risks to many high levels of loss of life that is very invisible. It's like a humanitarian disaster that no one sees, but it's a real one. Um, You know, things need to change. Air pollution, the problems of air pollution. So there are many factors in the health question around health and climate change, where different types of, where malaria will now spread because of the change in temperature. And helping governments be ahead of the curve in terms of their programs to public health to address uh, the the growing health issue. So, you know, definitely working on planetary health in the context of the climate crisis needs to be prioritised moving forwards.
0: I have another question actually for uh, Excellency Tasneen from Will Worley, um, but I'm sure others may have thoughts on this. Uh, he wants to know, do you think that cuts to the UK aid budget, um, which has included some climate environment projects, uh, has damaged the uk's credibility as a climate leader and its ability to lead the negotiations at cop26
3: thanks for the question actually we saw the debates in the uk parliament um regarding this cut and it was questioned by across the board by many parties but actually you know um uk uh, in bangladesh works with civil society organizations and i believe that the uh, uk's aid uh, there was two percent dedicated to climate change uh, that was going into Bangladesh. They were working with coastal NGOs for early warning and this. And I suppose it will have an impact on those civil society because uh, even though the government doesn't take any aid, but the civil society uh, is the is the basis and foundation of UK support all around the world. So um, definitely, you know, those civil society who are doing community-level uh, work with fringe, uh, you know, vulnerable communities at the fringe, at the, at the absolute marginalised communities, uh, would would impact it. That's what I believe.
0: That's uh, That's, uh, very, very uh, interesting to know. Does anyone else want to come in on uh, aid cuts? Uh, No? Um, I have a question I think which uh, all the panel may have views on from my colleague Tim Duran and uh, simply what does the panel think of the understanding and awareness of adaptation and its dangers of not doing it and why it is so low in the UK? Um, As Baroness Brown says it's been talked about for over a decade but why hasn't it cut through? Like I mean you know, we, we've heard from Excellency tasmanian why it sort of hasn't received as much impetus at the political level, but like suddenly at a public level, you know, do you, are people going to sort of realise that this is more urgent soon? Like what what needs to change? Uh, Baroness Brown, could I maybe go to you first and then um, if others have their hands up and I'll come to you.
2: Well, I would have to, I think the weather is doing a good job at the moment of uh, of uh, showing us exactly the sorts of things that that have to change. I do think... Sometimes our our language for adaptation. Um, first of all, the word itself, adaptation, is uh, is an ugly and difficult one that I don't think people understand very well. Um, but also um, the the fact that we have to talk about um, weather and climate in in probabilistic terms, um, we I think confuse people by um, you know the idea that you're in a a one a, a region which has a one in a hundred year probability of a a serious flood. You have a serious flood. Uh, lots of people then think, well, we've got another 99 years before the next one happens. So I think we need to get the language simpler and, and more direct. Um, and I think actually we we really need to integrate climate change, adaptation and mitigation into all of our teaching in schools and colleges, so that young people come through with an understanding um, out into their adult lives with a, an, a much better understanding of this. But it, but it has been really good. Um, both with our publication of the um advice on the climate change risk assessment and with the Met Office's publication of the state of um the u k climate um it has been really good to see how much this has been picked up by radio and television and I hope that you know if we all keep going at it, it really will start to get um much higher profile with people
0: Thank you very much um yeah, speaking of the weather i mean uh, my, my downstairs neighbors were flooded out just two weeks ago, which is a uh, you know, bringing it home. Really. Uh, Jane, I saw you had a hand.
4: Um, yeah, I just wanted to add to that. Um, you know, I think, I think Baroness Brown is, this is absolutely central. It's the way that we communicate um, our understanding of, of changes in the climate and potential adaptations. We work really closely, you know, we're, we're scientific community, but we actually work really closely with social scientists, for example, to think about how we communicate um, the climate science information, how we work together with vulnerable communities to understand um, what sensitivities they have, what decisions they're making. But really, you know, it, I think really it's, it's, it's working with different disciplines to, to really understand how people make decisions, what type of language we should be using to communicate that is really important to our, to our science and our communication and getting people to take action. So I just wanted to say that, you know, we're doing a lot of work in that area because we do see it as really central to making people take take action. Um, I think it's really um, interesting, Baroness Brown, how you mentioned about, you know, changing, you know, the the skills and learning. And I think that's really important too. A lot of um, skills in many different sectors of society are going to have to change and adapt. You know, for example, as we move to electric vehicles, um, you know, engineers are, are going to have to change from operating combustion engines to electrical Batteries, you know, how homes are, the infrastructure of homes, the technology that, um, you know, builders are going to have to learn to make sure that public buildings, that personal buildings are fit for purpose. There's a lot of change that's going to have to happen. And I think that has to start building in, you know, all the, uh, like you say, right down from early education.
0: Thank you. Uh, uh, Richard had a hand and then uh, Excellency Tasneem.
1: Well, I would just say, you know, You know, like Baroness Brown was saying, you know, what happens in the UK and what's happening around the world, we're in this together. You know, it has direct links back home. It's not like we live in an island separate from the rest of the world. And, you know, the UK public supports our humanitarian aid around the world, uh, which is good. And let's hope that they will also support early action and prevention, because obviously prevention is cheaper. It can help preserve lives. Let's hope we can learn more from countries like Bangladesh and bring that learning into the UK so that we ourselves do better early action um you know in an organized and effective way. Uh, also we should sell you know work on you know highlighting successes where in fact adaptation has delivered people not being affected by a flood and able to save their lives or save their goods uh, where they're less severely affected. Um, and then lastly, what I would just highlight is at the moment, you know, only about 10% of existing adaptation financing goes to communities around the world. That is not acceptable and it's not having, it's not a way to get impact. You have to find a way to get the resources to where they are needed most, uh, so that you can actually support communities, preserve and protect themselves, uh, from the effects of these extreme weather events.
0: I think uh, that's really important, Richard, and I, I'm really heartened to hear all the sort of the, the repeated references to sort of communities and the need for local action. Uh, Excellency Tanzaneem, uh, your thoughts.
3: Thank you. I'll just, you know, echo Richard, because Bangladesh is a country that has been living with natural disasters for decades, for centuries. So for us, the local communities, the, agricult- the farmers, the coastal communities who's- who experience floods every year, they lose their homes they adapt to it. That's why we are such a resilient nation. That's why we still have a 6.1% growth rate. So what I'm saying is that learning from communities who are affected, for example, we have cyclone 20,000 cyclone shelters in our coastal area. That is where we evacuate people. We have a miking system by which by 24 hours, we can evacuate everyone from their homes. So people are used to it. So I think these are the experiences and best practices we need to share because we know that no one's going to you know going to be spared from climate change and the effects of it including we've seen floods in europe in uk we've seen fires in different parts of the world so uh, for bangladesh uh, we are branded negatively for centuries as a you know disaster prone country but we have really learned and i've mentioned about floating Uh, agriculture. Why did we are adapting to that? Because we know in the coastal areas it's going underwater. So this is learning from nature and from experience. So sharing experience is extremely important and learning from uh, affected communities is very important. Uh,
0: Thank you. That was really, really good. Can I take a quick question just to Jane uh, from Colin Maffat? A question about um, what Is adaptation um, what what should we be considering in terms of the fact that the uh, the rate of change is not uniform around the world? And do we know what the sort of the key tipping points are and how close we are to passing those?
4: I mean, I think we're all waiting very much to see the um, you know the launch of the AR six IPCC report, Um, and I know there's a lot of work that's going on in that report in terms of bringing together that um that world leading scientific understanding around around tipping points but also um looking at the impacts on a regional perspective um as you say the rate of change is not uniform and understanding how what those impacts might look like around different regions of the world um you know is going to have there's going to be a particular focus on that so i think we're you know really looking forward to seeing the outputs of that work you know again this is The work on this is a demonstration of the international community um, working together to understand these impacts Um, so it's yeah a very good question thank you
0: thanks jane that was a really helpful answer Um, just being conscious of time i've i've got i think i'm going to take one last question which is from amy and for all the panel amy says this is also interesting and powerful however i feel quite helpless with how to help what is the one thing that an individual can do uh, so, what is the one thing that we can do as everyday people? Um, if I go to Excellency uh, Tasneem first, and then I'll sort of work around.
3: Okay. So, the one thing she can do is plant trees, and plant those kind of trees who are carbon sinks that absorbs carbon. So, in Bangladesh, uh, you know, our Prime has given an incentive that we'll plant. We have already planted ten million trees in the coastal areas, but we'll plant thirty million trees in the next three years. So, I think a tree plantation. I saw that it's in the UK's. Uh, proprietary list, 30,000 hectares of trees. So I think that should be a welcome. The simplest thing that a person can do is, you know, plant a tree or plant trees, particularly that are carbon-sting. And number two is, one more thing they can do is, you know, switch to uh, solar energy as much as possible. I think these two goes for mitigation and adaptation both.
0: uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Richard, what's one thing that we can do as everyday people to help adaptation?
1: Recycle. You know small things make a big difference i mean you know and everybody doing that in a more organized and effective way and then joining your local resilience committee or finding groups of people that are interested in this agenda and then finally bringing voice talking about it you know, with your neighbors with your community and if you can reach decision makers do that because we are not on a good path and the likelihood of the cop 26 not quite delivering what we all need to avoid three uh, percent or four degrees, you know, is very is significant. So you know, we need activism.
0: I, uh, I I absolutely agree with that. I think you know, I'm always staggered when you they do polls and they show the number of people who are still sort of loosely unaware of this thing. I, I think talking about it is is such a powerful individual act. Uh, Jane, what what would you say to Amy? What's the one thing that uh, we can do as everyday people?
4: Um, So I'm going to say something slightly different here. I'm I'm going to not just with individuals, but um, individual communities and countries. I think it's it's about joint action. So, for example, from the G7, I think what was really strong coming from this is to see the proposed joint action. So, for example, around working in that collective action to provide support to the most vulnerable to climate change and extreme events and that can be from a nation but it can also be in communities as well to look at who might be the most vulnerable and work together to provide support i think for example launch of the adaptation research alliance which is a global coalition and we can have local coalitions as well across you know pulling together our communities on climate, on on um, development, on humanitarian action, that building coalitions and collective action, I think, is where the power is, and that can be on many different scales. So that's how I would finish.
0: I think that's a, a really good point, and actually, sort of builds on what's also being said. I, I, I'm fascinated that this isn't just at the COP level. You know, you have the the C40 cities, and you have, as actually Ms. said, you have the sort of the uh, the vulnerable countries forums. And I, I think, yeah, organising at every level, even down to sort of you know your local community, um, and, and really focusing on sort of what needs to be done, is really important. Uh, Baroness Brown, uh, the last word for you on um, what can Amy do as an everyday person?
2: Well, she can give some money to the Red Cross to support. Richard's campaigns um, to help adaptation uh, overseas, which uh, would be a great thing to do, or arrange a, a marathon or a sponsored walk or a whatever to raise some funds. But you could also do some local research. I mean, uh, if uh, if you most of us have a um, an, an indoor thermometer, if not, you can get one uh, very cheaply. Find out how hot it gets in your bedroom, in your living room, in front of your windows, uh, and think about the things you can do that like keeping heat out by drawing the curtains on a hot day or trying to make sure you get you, you get a through draft in, in parts of the house. Um, look at the uh, local flood maps to check the Environment Agency flood maps to check whether you uh, and particularly perhaps do this for your grandparents, um, you know, think about how hot do their homes get? Um, do they know whether they're in uh, a flood risk area? Are they signed up for the Environment Agency flood alerts? make sure they know what to do when one of the one of the um, uh, Met Office um, high temperature new heat warnings comes up. Um, Richard's recent report uh, had lots of useful things to uh, to do for us all to uh, uh, to try and combat heat and you know things like drinking plenty of water of course are crucial, but particularly make sure the elderly people in your community uh, or people who are ill or people with very young children Make sure they know about how to respond in these situations.
0: Thank you very much. And I think that's, a, again, as a reminder that this is at all levels, you know, climate justice isn't just about rich nations helping poor nations. It's about, you know, stronger people helping the weak in their own communities. I'm conscious we're at time and I'm so sorry to all the people whose questions we couldn't get to. There were just absolutely fantastic ones in the list just really highlighting the sort of the breadth of this issue and, and the complexity of it and, and the energy and enthusiasm that there is to solve it. Uh, we will be continuing to sort of host, host these conversations and look at this as the Institute for Government, and I hope we can keep working with uh, the CCC and sort of our international partners, charities like the uh, Red Cross and uh, government organisations at like the Met Office to, to deliver progress on this. Um, so, Just for the last thing, I'd like to thank again my panel, Baroness Brown, Excellency Tasneen, uh, Richard and Jane, and I'd like to wish you a very good day. It's been very good to have you. Thank you very much.